you know what you know what we, what we missed we, we missed the perfect opportunity to ask dr tony brew what his favorite brew was <laughs> dr brew's brew <laughs> you can tweet it adam stewart i wouldn't we'll do <laughs> i wouldn't either paul <laughs> The Curbsiders Podcast is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only, and the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. Furthermore, the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of those and should not be interpreted to reflect official policy or position of any entity, aside from possibly cash like more hospital and affiliate outreach programs. If indeed there are any, in fact, there are none. Pretty much, we are responsible if you screw up. You should always do your own homework and let us know if we're wrong. <laughs> Welcome back to the Curbsiders. Well, hi, Matt. Hey, Stuart. How's hi. it going? It's. It's okay. <laughs> I thought I I thought I banned you from being a downer in the intro. Uh, That's right. All right. <laughs> all right, Stuart. I'm glad you're. I I thought we just had a really fun time recording with uh, Paul and and Chris and and our wonderful guest Tony. Uh, Paul, are you here? I'm here. Okay, Chris. I'm I'm still here. Okay. <laughs> All right. Um, Paul, I'm sorry. I, I guess Chris introduces this episode in, in, instead of you. And uh, before we get to Chris for that, I just wanted to give the audience a heads up of what this episode is going to be. So we went through a bunch of hotcakes articles. Uh, this Topics this month are aspirin. We talk about fish oil. We talk about hypertension a bunch. And we talk about the effects of exercise on mortality. It's a, ver it's a great discussion. And before we get to it, Chris is going to tell you a little bit about this show format and our guest. Today is another edition of Hotcakes, where we discuss the most interesting articles and news that we've been reading. We have a very special guest with us today this episode. A few months back when we start, first started Hotcakes, we had a listener tweet at us that he wanted more historical articles. Well, we have this notorious listener with us today to help talk about some of his favorite quote-unquote cold cakes. This internist may be well known to most of you on Med Twitter because of his tutorials. As many of you guessed, our guest is the prolific Dr. Tony Brew. Dr. Brew is the Assistant Professor of Medicine at Harvard Medical School and a hospitalist and the Director of Internal Medicine Resident Education at the VA Boston Healthcare System. His research interests include no-value care, also known as things we do for no reason. He is also core faculty at the Harvard Center for Bioethics, where he is a course director and co-course director of a number of classes. Great to have you on, Tony. Tony, uh, thank you so much for joining us on the show. And before we get into all these great articles we're going to talk about tonight, I just wanted you to give the audience a one-liner to describe yourself and, and add in something that you do outside of the world of medicine. Fantastic. Well, uh, thanks for having me on. I'm super excited to be here. Uh, I'm a 40-year-old uh, husband to an amazing woman uh, and father to two young children. Uh, clinically, I work as a hospitalist uh, in the VA system, uh, caring for veterans in the New England area. And I love uh, researching things we do for no reason, as uh, some people who followed uh, some of my work in the Journal of Hospital Medicine may have noted. And outside the hospital, I'll be honest, I'm a uh, depressed New York Mets fan. Uh, <laughs> baseball season's over, and I, I can't really say that I'm excited for next season because I don't know that it's going to be much better. <laughs> okay. So you, you just take my tact. I don't watch any sports, and then I, <laughs> you know, I feel great. <laughs> Well, I'm a, I'm a New York transplant to the Boston area, which cannot be a Oof. good thing. Oh, that's rough. No. 
Let me ask you what your guiltiest pop culture pleasure is, and I'll self-disclose just so you don't have to feel bad. Mine, for instance, would be the movie Basketball, which I would not recommend because I, but, but I love it more than almost anything. So what what piece of pop culture do you enjoy but are also ashamed of liking? Uh, uh, actually, I'll mention two things. One um, is uh, pretty much any Bravo TV show. Uh, my wife constantly has Bravo on in the background when we're trying to get our children to bed. So things like Below Deck, um, I, I would be lying if I, if I said I didn't pretend I wasn't watching watching it, even though I'm definitely <laughs> watching it. Um, uh, and then this one, I'm not as guilty uh, to say, but it, it may be a little bit surprising. Um, Mo- Moana, uh, the, um, uh, the the movie with, um, oh. uh, yeah, uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda wrote the, the soundtrack to it. Yeah, every Friday evening, my, my wife works late. And so when I come home with my daughter, um, I make the offer that we can watch Moana. And I'm, uh, I would say, 51% doing it uh, to make an offer to my daughter because she loves the movie, but 49% because I love the movie myself. It's just really fantastic. <laughs> it's it's just a delight. I, really I couldn't is. agree more, actually. I've never seen it. Oh, oh wow. It's so good. You you should. Yeah. And afterwards, you'll say you're welcome. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Nicely done. <laughs> yeah, Stuart. And you're, yeah, your kids, I think your kids would even like it regardless. I know your daughters are teenagers, but they would, they would like it. Well, one, two of your daughters I'm, are teenagers. I'm 40 years old and I love it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Stuart, it's yeah, good. It's well, really good. I think the, the only one who would sit down and watch it would be my son, who's 10. And then he'd look at me and say, you're crazy, dad. I don't think so. I think it's, it's good. It's got the rock. Yeah. <laughs> It's good. It's good. All right. Fair enough. So now that we've debated Moana, Chris, maybe we should, <laughs> maybe we should move into the show. So, uh, what do you, where, where did the idea of the tweetorial come from? And uh, I don't know. What do you think about it? Well, so uh, you probably like some. Yeah, no. So I definitely did not invent uh, the tweetorial, as you guys likely know. Um, Daryl Francis, a cardiologist in the UK, and Vinay Prasad, um, uh, oncologist uh, out in um, Oregon, both uh, were doing this far uh, before I was. Um, basically, I, I wrote one uh, about uh, the anemic response to acute hemorrhage and was floored by the positive response. And it was a little bit of an adrenaline rush, I have to admit. And uh, and so I realized, well, let me try this again, see if um, people come back for more. And the reality is that uh, doctors are really interested in pathophysiology. And if you can um, make the question one that is relevant to their day-to-day practice or one that they maybe have asked but just didn't know an answer to, um, you're going to get buy-in. And um, the beautiful thing about Twitter is even though it's short, you can string together, you know, 10, 15, really no more than that tweets and, and get people's attention. Um, so I, I've, I'll tell you something, I've learned so much and it's made teaching uh, on the inpatient ward significantly easier because now I feel like I have this cadre of things I can uh, teach about that, you know, six months ago I had, I had no clue the answers to. So there's actually an entry on the uh, Urban Dictionary for, for Tweetorial now, which I think is kind of funny. Wow. Yeah. What does it say? It says, a tutorial made by screening together a series of tweets. A tutorial is therefore a long or extended tweet and is used only used only on Twitter. As with tweets, one can add hashtags, links, polls, and short videos for tutorials. It's actually got a definition now online. It's so interesting. Yes. Yeah, no. I, I I didn't expect it when I Googled it when you were talking about it. <laughs> oh, okay. All right. So I, I I guess maybe we should just get into our articles now. Yeah. All right. I think so, so 
Our first article goes to Tony since he is our guest. And, you know, he really wanted to bring us some good old fashioned historical journals. So we're going to call them cold cakes. And uh, he definitely picked a pretty good one. I think aspirin has been in the mind of a lot of internists lately, you know, a lot of primary care providers and cardiologists, because we've just had a whole bunch of aspirin articles. And those were mostly pointed towards primary prevention, but um, th- we have some, uh, Tony picked a, a really cool article um, that has aspirin in it about treatment. So it was a little different, but I think it goes with the theme of some of the things that we're thinking about recently. Tony, do you want to talk, tell us about this? Yeah. So this is a ISIS-2 trial. Um, it, as uh, Christian mentioned, is a little bit of a cold cake published in uh, 1988. Um, but I, I, I chose this article for a couple of reasons. Um, one, because I feel like aspirin is one of those things in medicine that like nobody questions, right? Acute, acute MI, you get aspirin. Um, but I found that uh, when you push a little bit harder and ask people, all right, well, what's the actual benefit? Um, there's a little bit of sputtering. People don't necessarily know how good it is. They assume it's good, but they don't necessarily know how good it is. And this became um, quite palpable a couple of years ago when we had a guy at VA who was having an acute MI and was also uh, having intracranial hemorrhage uh, from Mets in the brain. And we had this debate, oh my gosh, should we give him aspirin? Should we not give him aspirin? And until we looked back at this study uh, and realized that, you know, okay, aspirin's good, but it's not like it reduces the risk of death by like 90, 95%. Uh, until we did that, we assumed it would be ridiculous to withhold this like absolutely, um, you know, clearly life um, saving therapy. And so so that, in addition to a few other things, was why I kind of wanted to to discuss this paper, because I think some of the, your audience, well, I'm sure all of your audience knows that aspirin is uh, therapy for acute MI, but they may not have a sense for actually how good it is. Uh, and so I don't, I don't know if you guys had a chance to look over the paper and had any thoughts on um, the actual strength of benefit and, and whether or not it surprised you either was better than you thought, was worse than you thought, or kind of met the expectation that you had had. All right. So, so Tony, in the ISIS-2 trial, what, what did they actually, what was the population they looked at and what, what were the different interventions that they did, they used? Yeah. So they included over 17,000 patients and, and it wasn't just aspirin. It was this, um, not, I wouldn't say complex, but a little bit more complex than the usual um, single-arm placebo-controlled trial. It actually was, had an aspirin arm and had a streptokinase arm, so they actually were evaluating thrombolytics um, at the same time that they were uh, evaluating aspirin. And so all the patients that were enrolled, these 17,000-some-odd patients, all had suspicion for acute MI, and about 50% of them had uh, STEMIs on their ECG. And the rest of them had, you know, either um, uh, SC depressions or other changes that were consistent with acute MI. And they were randomized to either aspirin, streptokinase, both, or neither. And the primary outcome of this trial was vascular death at five weeks. So pretty short term uh, in terms of uh, when they were looking to see was if aspirin had any benefit. What what struck me about this is that it was it was so semi recent. I mean, in my lifetime, and and it, it, you were you could you could uh, include a no treatment in this, like a placebo, because nowadays <laughs> yeah. you know nowadays that would not fly. So that that was one of the main the main big things that jumped out to me at this, and that they were still trying to figure out if you know aspirin alone or aspirin in combination with uh, streptokinase was was better than nothing. Um, so it's just like really, it's relatively new, this, this whole field of like 
treating acute myocardial infarctions. I think stents were in the sort of like the late 70s, early 80s. And since then, we've been iterating all this, trying to figure out what's the optimal treatment and everything. And I think this was one of just the main like landmark trials. Um, yeah, this I, is this is to my mind a top five in internal medicine. Um, and, and, and exactly as you said, Matt, it, it, this was a, in some ways a little bit late, at least in the aspirin game. I mean, there were studies on secondary prevention and in unstable angina that had preceded this. But the idea of giving aspirin for acute MI wasn't as clearly defined uh, as it became after the study was published. And, you know, 30 years ago, yeah, that's a, a long time ago. But if I had to guess before I knew it was 1988, I would have guessed that aspirin therapy for acute MI was even older still, like, you know, maybe 60s or 70s, not 1988. Yeah. So recently we had discussed both the ARRIVE and ASCEND trials uh, for the utility of aspirin as a uh, for primary prevention. And it doesn't really show at least... Um, in the ARRIVE trial, the ASCEND, plus or minus, depending on if we look at the risk-benefit profile, it doesn't really look like there's there's a significant benefit for primary prevention. I want to know if maybe these newer trials might change the way that you interpret uh, this uh, the ISIS-2 trial, knowing that the prevalence of statin therapy is likely uh, blunting the effect of aspirin therapy. I think it's a great point. At the time they did uh, ISIS-2, the therapies that we had available for uh, an acute MI, and we'll use you know, STEMI as maybe the best example, um, weren't as, uh, we didn't have as many of them, right? So statins, as you mentioned, Stuart, was one. And at this time we had thrombolytics. I mean, thrombolytics was one of the arms, but we didn't have um, primary PCI and stenting. And so my guess is that, as you mentioned, Stuart, the, the effect of aspirin here where, you know, with a relative risk reduction for five-week mortality of 20%, that's probably would, that probably would be blunted if we repeated the trial in 2018. I don't think aspirin would be shown to be nearly as effective. So is no one going to bring up the elephant in the room that one of the, one of the secondary outcomes they looked at in the trial was a subgroup analysis of uh, Zodiac sign? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, so this is my other absolutely, I mean, this is my favorite paper of all time, and, and that's one of the reasons. Uh, I, I don't know if you guys caught this, but it is like, so the history behind this is that the um, the author submitted it to Lancet, and Lancet said, okay, great, this is a wonderful, fantastic 17,000 patients. Uh, we want a subgroup analysis. And the Lancet authors were like, fine, but you got to let us put uh, whatever subgroups we want. And they chose uh, to separate it by the 12 astrological signs to demonstrate the fact that if you cut a set of data up enough, you're going to find a false negative, right? So people born under the uh, signs of Gemini or Libra, according to this study, have no benefit for aspirin. Uh -oh. It sucks for them, but that's what the subgroup analysis showed. And that's obviously clearly not the case. Aspirin is beneficial in those patients, but it just... It was meant to show that if you if you chop up the data in enough ways, you'll find these false negatives. Or they may have uncovered something remarkable. <laughs> it's quite there may be something very very odd about being born on June tenth, and um, aspirin just doesn't work if you're born on June tenth. <laughs> we need to follow that one up. I think that needs a tweet tweetorial. You can you can speculate. <laughs> <laughs> you can speculate how the physiology of how that might work. All right, Tony, how many cold cakes do you give this one? Uh, out of uh, how many cold cakes can someone actually get? 
Oh, Tony, don't, okay, don't indulge us. <laughs> How many cold cakes? Can uh, Chris, I'll, I can I can briefly go over the sta- scale. So uh, we'll just okay. we'll just have it parallel our our hot cake scale. So six six hot cakes is a full stack. So three hot cakes is okay. a half stack, and and you know the same for cold cakes. Okay. <laughs> I honestly don't think I knew that. Uh, so <laughs> I would give this. I, I'd give if you're not a Gemini or a Libra, I'd give this a full six hotcakes. If you're a Gemini or a Libra, <laughs> unfortunately, it's got to be a zero. Yeah, awesome. <laughs> Makes sense. All right, let's move on to the next one. So uh, Paul's pick, as you would guess, um, his pick is uh, in, from the recent article in the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry on the fact that, that sensation. To do with marijuana. Yeah, the fact that sensation in cannabis is tied to memory improvement. I actually, I'm sorry, I'm kidding. <laughs> Now, Paul decided to do a cardiovascular study as well. Paul, do you want to tell us about it? Sure, I'd be happy to. And I, I should mention when the, the cannabis article came out, I felt almost resigned to have to do it. Like, I'm tired of talking about it and thinking about it, but I just, <laughs> it's become my shtick now. Um, but there's another article that came out, and I I, I chose it because um, I, I need your guys' help with it. I'm just not quite sure what to make of it. Uh, it's from, and apologies to, to Dr. Mansager or Mansager for mispronunciation at all in the JAMA Network Open. And this this made the news rounds. It's the Association of Cardiorespiratory Fitness with Long-Term Mortality Among Adults Undergoing Exercise Treadmill Testing. And so basically the background for this is, and what I think is interesting about this article is how they frame their conversation and the discussion and the point that they're trying to make. But the background is there's some recent studies <laughs> that I think involved a fair amount of schadenfreude in that they suggested that people who exercised a whole lot actually maybe had uh, cardiovascular problems. So there was concern for associations between um, really high levels of exercise and atrial fibrillation and myocardial fibrosis and LV and RV remodeling. And I feel like it was a way for those of us who don't exercise much to feel kind of smug about the people who actually are taking the time to take care of themselves. Um, and so this, this article ostensibly is, is to address that. So they use this as background. And what they did was they looked at, uh, it's a retrospective uh, chart review that actually looked at 122,000 patients that underwent exercise treadmill testing for whatever reason. Um, so that's part of the selection criteria. So that maybe for symptoms, maybe for evaluation of CAD, or maybe for other, um, they didn't really worry too much about that kind of stuff. And they basically um, assessed how fit the patients were that did this. And so they used the exercise treadmill test to actually assess METs. And then based on the METs, actually stratified patients even further in terms of how fit they were. And so there was elite performance and uh, high and above average and below average and, and low performing. And then this was further stratified among age groups as well. And so Basically, reassuringly, what the study found after a lot of uh, statistical massage. Um, <clears throat> after exercise. Yes, yes, <laughs> a lot of exercise, a lot of stretching. Um, is that patients who are extremely fit, who are in this elite performance group, had these very high level uh, of METs, um, died less. And then the patients who performed poorly or, or well below average in the low category had a higher mortality. And so their takeaway from this was interesting to me and in that it's it was basically a prescription to exercise really really hard um because that is as preventive uh as anything else that we have and then actually low exercise and this was kind of buried i thought was actually considered to be an even sort of worse prognostic indicator than things like smoking or cad or diabetes or high blood pressure so mm-hmm. um 
but it's what I mean by the framing of it. I thought it was very interesting that they're like, good news, exercise is good for you again, even though I don't know <laughs> that any of us really thought that wasn't the case. Um, and so, but it, to me, it's more interesting in terms of how it looked at patients' functional status at a moment in time and how that is actually a used a fairly decent predictor of mortality. So I took away a little bit of a different take-home point um, than what the authors sort of framed the conversation as. So they were, this is a prescription for exercise, whereas for me, exercise treadmill testing does not, the way the study was designed, the limitations are, you know, this is, you're looking at one test in time and not someone's whole fitness background, how much they've exercised over their lifetime. And it just doesn't take a lot into account, including socioeconomic stuff and the reasons for referral. And there's just a lot of intangibles and unknowns that I, I don't know that I could come to quite the conclusion that they came to. But I think as a predictor of mortality, um, and, and in terms of functional status, I think the exercise treadmill test actually was pretty good. So that, that was sort of more the takeaway that I got from this. I'm not sure if you guys had a chance to look at it or what your thoughts were. Tony, you can go first. What do you think? Well, I'll, I'll tell you, it's a little bit reassuring because I definitely consider myself an elite athlete uh, in, all, in, in all capacities. And so, sure. uh, you know, I had always worried that I was on the wrong end of that U-shaped curve. Yes. Um, but actually, and honestly, this is somewhat reassuring because um, I, you know, I do a fair amount of preoperative medicine and we do do exercise treadmill tests more often than we probably should. Um, and, I, you know, I don't think I have to worry nearly as much about am I getting if I give am I giving someone false reassurance, sending them to the operating room um, after they've done well on the, the, the stress test. Now, I know this is not exactly what the study was aiming to, to look at, but it's reassuring that if you can exercise, you're probably uh, in pretty good health. That, that, that's intuitive, uh, but it's nice to see after looking at one hundred and twenty thousand patients that it probably holds true. Right. Paul, I wanted to, I just wanted to highlight what you, you, you mentioned it when you were giving your overview, but the below average fitness on, on this treadmill test versus someone who was above average. So not like not high and not elite. So someone that was just, just above average, um, that was, that was the difference compared to someone who was below average of like having that below average person might as well have diabetes or might as well be smoking. Like that was, there was as much of a difference between those two people as if, as if the other person was smoking. So let's just, just to highlight, cause I don't know if I said it that well, let's say if you were, if you were a below average person, uh, on the exercise (laughs) test, I think we can all agree. I am solidly below average. So I, I'm so far your thesis holds up. (laughs) Oh, I wasn't, uh, I, I wasn't referring to Paul specifically, but that helps the example. <laughs> Paul, I just wanted to highlight that the difference between someone who is below average on an exercise test uh, and an above average person was as if the below average person was smoking uh, or had diabetes. Uh, that That's some of the examples that they gave in there. That's So I, I think that's pretty, you know, it's a pretty good, good motivation to uh, start exercising. Right. Or start smoking. <laughs> <laughs> Sarah, Sarah, our producer, wants to know what what, what about Gemini? <laughs> did they did were the zodiacs uh, were the zodiac signs tested? I didn't notice it when I was looking through the article, Paul. That was not a subgroup mm-hmm. analysis. I saw. I can only assume Gemini's did poorly. Yeah, I, I think this well, was well. They, they must have done poorly because they weren't taking even if they were taking aspirin, they they would have died from their <laughs> no difference. 
<laughs> I, I think, and, and this this has gone back. Like I've I've kind of heard rumblings of this that there's like a, there was like an elite marathon runner or somebody who like blew out his right ventricle or something like that and had to stop and you, you know had myocardial fibrosis. Had to stop. Oh goodness! Had to stop. Had to stop running marathons. Yeah. So there was like this kind of buzz among like the these like ultra ultra athletes that that maybe it's not great for your heart to be to be at the elite I, level. I, yeah. He he may have only died if he wasn't a, a an elite athlete. Oh, my goodness! <laughs> so but I wonder how much of that has to do with surveillance. Like I've not been able to dig right. it up in the background literature, but you have these ultra elite athletes. Like I, I imagine they're probably seeing physicians and trainers far more often than sort of the average person who goes for a run every so often. Well, so you, you should look at the FAA data for pilots, and I'm, you'll, you see the same thing. So because it it's more sensitive, so they're going to pick up a right. lot more cases early on. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, one of the things I look at with this study is for for the I don't do outpatient medicine. I know a number of you guys do, but I suspect you have patients who get frustrated that they're not losing weight when they exercise, and you can say to them, "Look, you know, weight loss is nice, but your fitness and your overall health is clearly right. benefiting from the exercise you're doing." Absolutely, That's a great point. absolutely, yes, yeah. Maximum uh, benefit is typically seen around five to ten percent of total body weight. So anything more than that is just you know extra. No pun intended. All right. We need to be wrapping up on this one. So, Paul, how many hotcakes? Because I know you love giving hotcakes. I, I mean, I, I don't know, man. Um, three. It's three hotcakes. What are you doing? What What is this? <laughs> it's only going to get weirder from here because our next article, um, Matt chose um, and um, our very own Sarah Roberts also um, trademarked this. We're calling it a future cake because it has not been published yet. Ooh, ooh, um, ooh. And it's called the Reduce It trial, apparently, and not to be confused with the Improve It trial, which is the Zetamide study, or the Reduce trial, which is the COPD study. So, Matt, do you want to tell us a little bit about this st study? All right, it's Chris here. Um, I actually want to break into the middle of the conversation, and I want to say that this episode was recorded before um, the Reduce It trial was released, and now it has been. So just keep that in mind and um, enjoy the rest of the discussion. Sure. Thank you, Chris. So this was this was a little bit of a misunderstanding on my part because I <laughs> I chose the article based on the headline and then I was too far into it by the t by the time I realized that it wasn't fully published yet. But uh, I didn't want to have to. I didn't want to have to notify everybody like two days before our recording that they're going to have to do a new article. So anyway, this this reduced study is much anticipated. It's it it kind of has to do. It's not quite fish oil, but it's in that vein. So Vasepa V A S C E P A is in is a it's a type of like E P A that is made by the Ameren Corporation. And the, there's a little bit of an interesting history here. And the, the reason we chose this is because they announced that they have a signal in their data that for patients who are already treated with a statin um, that, that have had cardiovascular disease, that if they're already treated on a statin and their LDL is low, but their triglycerides remain between 150 and 499 that they have found a 25% reduction in major adverse cardiac events in that population with the use only for Gemini with, or Libra. with the use of this <laughs> of this medicine um, the I'll, I'll use the generic Icosapent ethyl, which is a type of EPA. It's a, so it's like a, a <laughs> it's not EPA and DHA in the pill. It's just the EPA portion of it. And so basically this is a medicine that, that was initially 
only FDA approved for triglycerides over 500. And about two years ago, the company actually sued the FDA so that they could market it to people who had a, a triglyceride level between 150 and 499. So they sued the FDA and the FDA, like, I guess, backed down and said, okay, fine, even though it's not officially approved for that, they can market it for this off-label use. And then uh, they had this big trial going on, um, which is the Reduce It trial. The lead investigator is a big time investigator. He's at uh, he's at Harvard uh, Brigham and Women's, and he has over 750 publications. And he's the the lead of this trial, hmm. where they had um, so they had 8,179 patients. And basically, these were people that were at increased cardiovascular risk, so they either had known cardiovascular disease where they were looking at it for secondary prevention, or they were at high risk where they had diabetes plus another cardiac risk factor, and then it was a blinded, randomized controlled trial, placebo-controlled trial, where they were taking four grams of this icosapentethyl, per, or this, I'm just going to call it EPA because it's easier. They were taking four <laughs> grams of this EPA per day, and they found a 25% relative risk reduction. Now, we don't have the absolute numbers. We don't have the absolute data. It's just like a nice headline that it says, like, for patients already treated with statin, now we add in this EPA, and these patients are going to have a, a decrease in major adverse cardiac events. And um, Stuart's putting up for me here, which this is something I had looked up. So, Stuart, 120 tabs. It looks like it's more expensive in your area code. Uh, in my area code, 120 tabs, because that's you have to take four capsules of this a day in order to get the four grams they were taking in the study and it was uh, $240 and Stuart's quoting me 300 to $350 in his area code uh, for this medicine. So I, I just thought, you know, the whole, and, and then the, 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 the conclusion of this, I kind of looked back in the literature a, a, a bit in the basic science literature. There's a lot of stuff that says like EPA helps, helps uh, favorably change your lipid profile and decrease inflammation. And there's even some imaging studies saying that it like stabilizes plaques but then there's a Cochrane review that just came out this year looking at EPA and DHA that says basically like all the studies that have shown benefit are have moderate to high risk of bias and there's no evidence that we should be using this pretty like, you know, against it. And now this study is going to come out at AHA. They're going to present it at November 10th um, at the AHA meeting. So I'm just interested to see what comes out of this. And I just thought it was interesting that this started with this company suing the FDA so that they could, you know, market it for this indication even before the results of this study were published. So that's a, Matt, do you think a this lot of is, words. Uh, so is it fish oil or snake oil? <laughs> You know, I'm confused now, Chris. That's part of the thing. Like, I thought I was, you know, I, 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 I had seen the Cochrane review and I was like, okay, you know, EPA, DHA thing. I think we can finally put fish oil to bed. And now this is like a big trial. Seems like it was well done. At least it was done by like a very accomplished researcher, but it is industry funded. So we'll have to see the full data, but I'm very skeptical of fish oil. And I will refer back to our nutrition episode where we talked about the PREDIMED study. We talked about the lion heart study and both of those had a great uh, reduction in all cause mortality by just following a Mediterranean diet. So that would be... Um, and and cardiovascular risk reduction. Um, so I would I would recommend a Mediterranean diet. It's probably you know a bit cheaper than buying these pills, and uh, maybe more enjoyable too. Yeah. 
Yeah. It, Tastes wonderful. Yeah. Deepak Bhatt, who's the lead researcher, he and I overlapped at VA um, when I was there as a chief resident. And then when I came back for my current job, and he's one of the only people I know who um, had two first author publications on the same day in the New England Journal of Medicine. I mean, he is a an amazing researcher. Yeah. Um, that, that doesn't mean that this wow. this product is um, worthwhile, um, but as a uh, as, he, as someone who's able to put together a clinical trial that um, um, probably is valid, he, he's the kind of guy who I suspect could do it. Right. Yeah. Well, and that's part of be on the lookout. That's yeah, exactly, exactly. That's part of that's part of what's adding to my confusion here. But that's one of yeah. the I think that's one of the humbling things. And I, I don't know, Tony, what you feel about this, but when you actually go back and look at the level of evidence and all these things that we do all the time, there's just so much uncertainty around, uh, and and things things are good one minute, then the next minute you find out they don't they don't work as well as you thought, or or vice versa. Yeah, and it. It's an interesting comparison, right? You look at the the uh, primary endpoint for a trial like this, and it's a composite of cardiovascular death, non-fatal MI, non-fatal stroke, coronary vascularization, unstable angina, and then you compare it to mm-hmm. ISIS two, the first study we talked about. It was vascular death. I yeah. mean, <laughs> yeah, it's right. and that, that it's really roma- yeah. dramatic the the changes that we've had to make in the the composite endpoints we have to use to find a difference in therapies. Yeah, right. And that, that's kind of like one of the issues that I really kind of have with these trials is just these massive composite endpoints that we include. And it, to me, that's, I don't know. I, I'd like to see the data. Yeah, we don't, because we don't know what's, which composite endpoints, if any, was driving, right. was driving this 25%, you know, re- exactly, reduction yeah. when you look at as a composite, so... Yeah. And if it's coronary revascularization, I mean, all that we're seeing in the use of that therapy for uh, stable angina, it really makes you question ever including that uh, outside of an acute coronary syndrome. I love that point. That's a great point. We can move on to the last two articles, and they are actually very closely linked. Um, you see, my pick this episode is um, is a new article that just came out last week on the management of hypertensive urgency, and it was actually written by Tony here and in his uh, Things We Do For No Reason series. And so he his actually cold cake pick is actually complimentary to it because it's actually featured in the discussion for the article. So Tony, do you want to talk about your pick and then we can talk about um, your article? Yeah. So if going back 30 years uh, wasn't cold enough, I thought we'd go back 50 years uh, for the second paper. Um, so the the other paper I thought we'd talk about was the 1967 VA cooperative study. Um, so this was, I don't know if it was the first VA cooperative trial, but I know it was one of the earliest ones. And um, this study basically um, laid the groundwork for the treatment of essential hypertension. So preceding this, um, you know, the treatment of malignant, malignant hypertension, uh, where patients had extremely high blood pressures and had papilledema uh, or acute kidney injury, uh, that was clear. But there was a lot of debate still about whether or not treating essential hypertension uh, was necessary. And as you guys probably have heard, the term essential uh, was used because there was a feeling that in order to perfuse the organs, you needed this high blood pressure, like it was essential to the perfusion of organs. Uh, So this trial um, randomized patients to either a combination of hydrochlorothiazide plus hydralazine plus reserpine, so three medications, or placebo. Um, And it included patients who had diastolic blood pressures uh, in the order of 115 to 120 in that range. And it followed them out for an average about one and a half to two years. 
Um, and the difference was striking. So, you know, at that point, 1967, there wasn't really a primary endpoint. They basically just observed patients and accumulated events. And, you know, if you look at things like death, stroke, MI, heart failure, um, uh, renal failure, hospitalization, you just basically add up all those things. The difference between the two groups was 39% versus 3%. That's a number needed to treat of about three. You really don't get much better in internal medicine than a number needed to treat for, of three. Uh, and as I mentioned, this is really one of the foundational papers in internal medicine. This laid the groundwork for why we treat hypertension, essential hypertension. So I, actually, one thing I'd, I'd like to bring up is actually some comments when we were all working on uh on, on the, the notes for, for this is Sarah, our producer, also brought up some interesting points. As we look at some of these older historical journals, there's some things that may look almost unethical as they do some of these studies. Do you want to comment a little bit on that? Yeah, I think Mary, Sarah raised a number of interesting issues. And uh, I think she's right that um, some of the, the the ways that this trial was conducted probably wouldn't fly in uh, 2018 in, in particular. Um, this trial probably would have been halted uh, a, a bit earlier than the two years that it was halted in this case. I mean, 40% versus 3% in terms of the difference in, in pretty hard outcomes. My guess is there would have been some data monitoring um, in an, a more, uh, an earlier fashion and the, the trial would have been halted for clear benefit. Now, the, the trial was ended early and the patients uh, who were on placebo did get therapy, um, but I suspect uh, the monitoring uh, and the trial went on longer than it would in 2018. Tony's article is very interesting, and, and he actually mentions it um, a little bit in his new article that came out last last week um, on his Things We Do For No Reason. He co-wrote this with, uh, is it Neil Axon? Is that right, Tony? Yep, Neil Axon. And 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 basically, it's it's sort of uh, a discussion, and, it's, and definitely has been a discussion that has come up multiple times, especially among our emergency medicine colleagues. I mean, I've heard it multiple times in other podcasts, as well as all over Twitter, about the discussion of hypertensive urgency and whether it's really a thing. And I think this it's it's a very short uh, couple of pages, but really go talks about a lot of the reasons why we look at hypertensive urgency, why we feel like we have to treat it because of the um, the um, sort of bring it together with hypertensive emergency and whether it's harmful or not when we're actually treating it. And I think it was a, a very well written article that really puts together all the information that we actually know on the subject. And it really shows that we don't actually know if it is beneficial to treat these patients with just elevated blood pressure and no other symptoms. Is that is that pretty much a, a pretty good summary of am I am I having a good takeaway from that, Tony? Yeah, what I'm hearing really more than anything is that it deserves ten hotcakes. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I heard the same thing. <clears throat> yeah, I would say that um, yeah. So I think that this um, we try to highlight sort of two separate things. There's the question of whether or not there's benefit to uh, acutely lowering patients' blood pressure when they have hypertensive urgency. And then there's the question of harm. And there's no great randomized uh, control data on this, but there likely is no benefit. Um, the question of harm is harder. I think if you do this enough times, uh, you'll eventually cause severe harm in some patient. Um, but I think we've all likely done, done this dozens of times. And you know, maybe patients feel a little bit lightheaded. Maybe patients fall. 
Um, knock on wood, I've never caused a stroke or an acute MI. I hope none of you guys have either. Uh, so I don't think the harm is definite, and uh, meaning I don't think that we're causing um, tremendous adverse events all around. But but it's such a prevalent action that we do that there's that in aggregate I think there's harm that's being done. I'm not sure if that makes sense. Oh no, I completely agree. I remember back in residency when we would admit a patient. There's a whole order set and a whole section is just like PRNs for hypertension. We would, as a resident, I would just automatically check those. And it, I had didn't even have a second thought in doing that. I don't know if you guys, everyone else, had similar experiences during their inpatient um, experiences. I think I fortunately or unfortunately gave IV hydralazine to a patient. Uh, on my night float rotation, which was my first block of intern year and, uh, bottomed out someone's blood pressure. And my, my senior resident who was eventually a chief resident who I'm still friends with was, was like, don't do that. What, you know, basically we did not believe in this practice and, uh, you know, told me why it was not a good idea. And so I learned, fortunately, the patient was just lightheaded. We, you know, laid him down, gave some fluids. He felt fine. But this was, uh, you know, no, nothing bad came out of it other than the momentary discomfort and the and, and me feeling tremendous guilt. Uh, but I, I, I find the one thing that's hard is it's very hard to, a lot of times you'll come in working in the hospital and this will have been done at, at Cashlack overnight. Someone's pushing IV hydralazine right. on your patient or somebody was messing around with the blood pressure medications. And I, I think, Tony, the, 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 my favorite point in the article, um, I, I thought it was great. Uh, it was just sort of kind of coming to the conclusion that maybe the right thing to do is to look at what they're taking and kind of, you know, decide, does this person have chronically uncontrolled high blood pressure? Do we do we believe these numbers we're seeing? Is there, is there no underlying cause for it? And can we just go up on some of their long acting agents? Because we know that there's no, in the next few hours, we're probably not going to cause them any benefit by bringing down their blood pressure for a hypertensive urgency. So I, I thought that was really well laid out in the article. Thank you. And I'll tell you, there's not universal agreement about the active titration or active management of, um, you know, outpatient, quote unquote, chronic conditions like hypertension in the hospital setting. And I, I totally understand that. Um, at the same time, where I work at a VA, I have access to outpatient blood pressures, and I can see if someone is always 160, 170, 180, and feel a right. little bit more confident, um, you know, doubling their dose of amlodipine. Um, and, and, and feeling as I'm not going to, um, you know, cause them to plummet when they get home. Although I do feel you don't necessarily have to have an EMR to support you. You can, I mean, some patients are able to give you just pretty good history and say, oh yeah, I'm always like in the one eighties over one hundreds mm -hmm. or two hundreds. So, um, I, I, what I like taking away from this is just looking at it's like, they're just hypertensive, treat them like they have hypertension, like you would in the outpatient setting, right. you know, look at, look at reasons for resistant hypertension, you know, titrate their oral medications because that'll probably give them better benefit in the long run. Um, I think I, I I read a similar update on uh, like hypertensive emergencies that um, Paul Merrick wrote um, several years ago. Um, I, you didn't reference his article in, in, in your in your citations, but um, I th I thought one of the uh, an interesting thing he, he was talking about hydralazine, which I had never known, was that apparently hydralazine after administration has a latent period of five to fifteen minutes, followed by a progressive and often precipitous fall in blood pressure that can last up to twelve hours. Although hydralazine's circulating half life is only three hours, the half time of its effect on blood pressure is about ten hours. So I was just like, I was like, wow. And so, 
And of our medications that we use for hypertensive urgency is like hydralazine and labetalol. So um, I was just oh, wow. <laughs> I, I'm like, well, I mean, if that's a horrible medicine to use anyways, then am I doing any good by using these medicines at all? Yeah. And one of the um, studies we talk about in the review is a randomized trial where they looked at uh, telmisartan, and um, uh, I think it's an ACE inhibitor, uh, versus REST. They actually randomized patients to get one of those two. And at two hours, there was no difference in blood pressure. But at 30 minutes, rest was better. Uh, and by better, I mean it lowered the blood pressure more. Um, so patients' blood pressures fluctuate. And if you just um, reassure them, reassure the nurse and give them some time, their blood pressure uh, right. oftentimes will come down. Right. And you have to think about what what are you really accomplishing? Like it's <laughs> in the same way that no one gets an acute diabetic foot. Like it's the same thing if someone's, you know, hypertensive crisis is one thing, but if someone just has an elevated blood pressure, what are you really fixing by making that number look better other than maybe a few more hours sleep of night float? Like you're not, you're not saving lives or prolonging anything at all. So it's just a, a big picture. What, what are you trying to accomplish? It sounds, Paul, as though you're trying to argue that sonic skin insulin is I, I might, do for no reason. I might suggest that as well, yeah. <laughs> Someone should write something about that. <laughs> I, I, I think another takeaway that I've sort of extrapolated from all this discussion about hypertensive urgency is the fact that, you know, in the outpatient settings where a lot of our listeners come from, they'll have patients who walk in with a blood pressure of like 210 over 120 and should they freak out or should they not? And, you know, if even in the inpatient setting, we're just like making sure they're asymptomatic, there's no other evidence for organ damage, and we just titrate their medic the oral medications, maybe that's something that we should be able to do in the outpatient setting and not have to yes. freak out and send people into the ER where the ER docs are just going to shrug their shoulders and be like, uh, I don't see any in-organ damage. Go back to your primary care doctor. Yeah. And, and uh, that, one of the other studies that we referenced um, looked at 58,000 patients who presented to outpatient clinics with hypertensive urgency and just 100 so 100 out of 58,000 were admitted to the hospital. And when I present this um, data to hospitalists and I say, hey, 58,000 patients seen in outpatient clinics, what percent do you think were hospitalized? They're like, oh, 20 percent, 30 percent. And I'm like, no, guys, 0.1 percent. Outpatient providers deal with this all the time. They do not admit these patients. Yeah. And there was another study that, that looked at this. And the, the patients that are sent to the ER at six months, the only thing that's different with asymptomatic hypertension, whether it's treated in the office or whether you send them to the emergency department, is if they're sent to the emergency department, they're more likely to be admitted to the hospital. At six months, their mortality is not any better. Their blood pressure is not any better. Like nothing else is different. They just had some time in the hospital after you sent them to the ER. So just manage it yourself if they're asymptomatic and they're not an emergency. I thought that seems like a fantastic point to end on. How many... How, so we're going to give this 10, 10 hotcakes, right? So that's like a like a, a super stack. Well, I thought we I thought we yeah we poached the four hotcakes um, from Matt's study because I don't think he, he gave any hotcakes. <laughs> yeah, I, I we I I did not give hotcakes. Chris didn't give mm. me the opportunity, but uh, yeah, well let's let's throw them over to your uh, to this study. I'll, I'll use it when I uh, when I am up for promotion. I'll tell patient. I'll, I'll tell them, hey, you know, guys, look, ten hotcakes for this one. <laughs> well that that's the end of all our articles i mean tony do you want to give us any wrap-up points from um this great discussion we've been having with you uh, so i'd say uh, exercise and you'll be more healthy uh, take <laughs> aspirin if you're having an acute mi unless you're gemini or libra um, if you have severe diastolic hypertension um, 
get that under control uh, <laughs> and wait for, I guess, the is he, did you say, Matt, is the ACC meeting next month where they're going to be presenting the data? Uh, AHA. AHA. Uh, so hold out another month before we figure out whether or not you should be taking EPA. Yeah, actually, by the time this comes out, it'll probably have been it'll the that that will already be out there in the world. I think oh. we'll see. Excellent. Not to be confused with the Environmental Protection Agency, <laughs> <laughs> which will not exist by the time this is out. <laughs> uh, election day tomorrow. Everyone vote. Thank you for listening to another episode. Well, of you're the welcome, Curbsiders. Chris. Oh, hey. <laughs> Episode of the Curbsiders Hot Cakes and Hot Takes. Please see our show notes for the references to all the articles discussed. If you want to know what else is on our reading list, you can email or tweet at us for that info. We want to thank you all and our listeners like Dr. Tran Pham over at the LSU Lake Charles Family Medicine Residence for all their feedback and support of the Curbsiders and the Evolving Series. That's right. This has been another episode of the Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. You can find show notes along with links to any articles, books, websites, or apps mentioned on the show at thecurbsiders.com forward slash podcast. You can also sign up to receive our weekly mailing list at thecurbsiders.com forward slash knowledge food. We are committed to providing you with high value practice changing knowledge and to do that we need your input. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show on iTunes or send us an email to thecurbsiders at gmail.com. You can recommend a future topic or tell us what you love or hate about the show. And finally, you can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at The Curbsiders. I'd also like to put out a special thanks to our team of correspondents who help keep the show running, including Hannah R. Abrams, who runs our Twitter account, Beth Garbs Garbatelli on Instagram, and Chris Chumanchu on Facebook. Also, a special huge extra large super duper 10 stack hotcake thanks to sarah roberts who helped produce this episode and did a lot of heroic preparation as well as uh chris chu who also did yeoman's work in helping to coordinate this episode it's very loquacious of you so until next time i've been dr matthew frank Wado. i'm christopher chu and i'm dr Stuart kent brigham and good night good night <laughs> and i remain dr paul nelson williams and goodbye oh hi paul was trying to apply a future hotcake rating scale to the current hotcake and unfortunately that's not permitted by law of physics so <laughs> i just felt like it was important to emphasize that we are in a rule bearing situation here <laughs>